Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Harry. In each podcast, I'll meet geographers from around the world to ask them about topical events, timely publications and geographical research. Frank Oates features in today's podcast, not as an interviewee, but as a topic of conversation in decolonizing geography. He was a 19th century explorer and uncle of the famous Captain Lawrence Oates, who died in Antarctica during the 1912 Terra Nova expedition. Frank was one of the first explorers to reach Victoria Falls, was renowned as an avid naturalist, and is celebrated for his indomitability of spirit. Indeed, he's quoted as saying, I like anything that seems difficult of attainment. His famous African expedition left Southampton Docks in 1873, which is coincidentally where our three guests are from. Peter Langdon is a professor of quaternary science and recently headed the Departmental School of Geography and Environmental Science. Christopher Pryor is an associate professor in colonial and post-colonial history. And Joseph Higgins is a postdoctoral research fellow in modern history, all of whom work at the University of Southampton. Thank you all for joining us today. Hello. Thank you for having us. Thank you. I should start by explaining Victorian exploration covers the Victorian period, i.e. British exploration under Queen Victoria's reign from 1837 to 1901. Uh, Chris, firstly, could you give us some background as to who Frank Oates was and why he is a historically significant figure in British exploration? Sure. Yeah. Thank you very much, Harry. I think Oates is important for us because he's an archetype. He is an archetype of a mid-century explorer. So he's born in Leeds. He studies at Oxford University. He's undertaken an expedition prior to his uh, being in Africa. He's gone to North and Central America at the start of the 1870s. But he is best known for his endeavours in Southern Africa, uh, travelling there from 1873 until his early death in 1875. So Oates is part of a particular moment. There's a surge of interest in exploring Southern Africa away from what is now South Africa and into what is now Zambia and Zimbabwe which is then, from a European perspective, is viewed as a place of which very little is known. This is a mysterious place. So Oates is notable. He was one of the first Europeans to see the Victoria Falls. This is a time when European and principally British colonial authorities were starting to look more at this area. So he's he's part of this exploration effort that kind of prefigures more intense imperial activity slightly later on in the century. But Oates is there to observe nature. He's got inter- keen interests in uh, topography and taxonomy, which is very clearly reflected in his letters and journals. But he's very much part of a broader desire for knowledge, for understanding about this particular part of the world. So as I say, Oates is interesting for us because he's very much a figure of his time. And Pete, what exhibit is currently on display for Frank Oates? And what else is happening at Gilbert House? Yeah, hi, Harry. Um there's a dedicated exhibition that documents uh, Frank Oates' work and his explorations. And he's, as, as has been mentioned, he's long held an interest in natural history. So it's evident from his, his uh, correspondence with his family from a very young age and, and other um, people of, uh, of note where he's swapping drawings of birds in particular. Um, he was a superb illustrator. And in the Oates, um, the Frank Oates, uh, exhibit at, at Gilbert White's House Museum. There's lots of examples of his of his drawings, which, which are absolutely superb. 
And his love of birds is captured in this amazing display of uh, Central American birds. As mentioned, he, he went there before going to Southern Africa and he traveled there in 1871. Uh, and soon after, actually, uh, he was elected fellow of the Royal Geographical Society um, after that expedition. And the main focus of the Oates display, in addition to this, is his expedition to, to, to Matabele land, to Southern Africa, and, and, and as he moved beyond South Africa into now Zambia and, and Zimbabwe. And it documents his travels there, shows a range of artefacts he collected, uh, and explains some of his interactions with the indigenous people, um, notably King uh, Lobangula, and, and we'll come on, I'm sure, to talk about more about him later. He is a natural historian. He collected many examples of uh, birds, but other animals as well. He has a, a snake, a vine snake, uh, named after him which is apparently highly venomous, uh, but not aggressive. And depending on which drawer you open, you may come across this snake in the museum. Uh, and in addition to, to the Frank Oates exhibition, it documents his nephew, Lawrence Oates, as you mentioned, from the Scott of the Antarctic expedition. That, that there's an exhibition on him. And the third person of focus at the museum, of course, is Gilbert White, perhaps the original naturalist. And, and his book, The Natural History, and Antiquities of Selborne, which was published in 1789, is considered to be one of the most printed books globally. And arguably, it was the first book to shape the relationship between humans and nature. And, and he was an absolute pioneer in this respect. The museum is superb. I would encourage anyone to visit it. It's got amazing gardens, a, a great cafe, and the team there do really fantastic outreach uh, and a range of educational activities working with, with a wide number of schools. That's an incredible uh, point about his book. Can you still purchase it? Yes, you can. At all good retailers. Yeah, The Natural History and Antiquities of Selborne. Amazing. So Frank Oates, the uh, natural historian, the geographer, perhaps the anthropologist as well, based upon what you've said already, Chris and Pete? I think that's a fair assumption, yeah. And I, 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 this is something we'll come on to in a in a little bit. But he was a, an acute observer of, of of African life and and custom. This is viewed through a particular lens. This is viewed through often, you know, a, a racial lens. Um, but that in itself is revealing and helpful to us as, as scholars of the nineteenth century. And Joe, what's been your role in this project? Uh, so my role uh, is probably sort of divided into two. So firstly, I've been working on the Frank Oates archive at the Gilbert White House for the last uh, couple of months. And if you think of the sort of stereotype of the historian in a dusty archive, you're, you're not far off because um, it's, it's largely uncatalogued um, and hasn't systematically been looked at by um, sort of many sort of scholars. Uh, and so to be able to go through this uh, for you know, opportunity to do so has been uh, incredible and incredibly exciting. And then the second part of it is off the back of that research into the archive, um, my role is going to be to help produce teaching and learning resources so that for sort of key stages three, four and five, we can uh, sort of exhibit, if you like, and showcase the findings of our research and to encourage teachers and students to engage in the subjects of geography and history in a, in a new, exciting and decolonised way. The dusty archive image, you must have been in your element. There's <laughs> <laughs> a very small cupboard as well. Uh, so it was a very small dusty archive where I was labouring away, but I survived. 
And your teaching resources, will they be accessible online? Yes, that's that's the intention. We want to make sure that um, the, the findings of this project are as sort of useful for teachers and as engaging for students as possible. So by the end of this project at the start of next year, we should have a sort of catalogue of resources that teachers will be able to use. And to all three of you, uh, whoever can jump in first, um, why is it important to re-examine Frank Oates's life and his exploration in, in Southern Africa, as we've already said, in Zambia and uh, Zimbabwe? Yeah, thank you. I think this is because of where we are as historians and geographers at the moment. At this present moment, we're, you know, we're moving on in terms of how we think about how we investigate these individuals and their expeditions. The, I think the thing that has interested us already about studying the Oates materials isn't so much what it tells us about Oates, although that is undoubtedly of interest, but for what it tells us about those people that he encounters. You know, individuals such as Livingston. You know, they generate myths. There's a hero worship that, that gets, and there's a hero worship industry that kind of emerges, which really kind of casts a long shadow over understandings of the period. For a long time, scholars got really fixated on the idea of the expedition as the, as the endeavor of a single white man, the kind of the white man with very strong facial hair striding purposefully across the African interior, where others involved in this are cast in merely supporting roles. But, you know, expeditions, they rely completely on indigenous peoples for passage, guidance, for other types of indigenous knowledge, for basic supplies, food and water. And so it's important to consider these expeditions in a new way, not as something that has previously been thought of as a where a, a, a European group goes out and does something to an African society, but as an encounter. This is an interaction. This is contested. Different peoples on different sides have different aims and different agendas. And that means that the outcome of that expedition is contingent. It's reliant upon not just simply European supposed pluck or European bravery or guile or ability as it was as it's previously been considered, but as something where different sides have got their own agendas, they've got their own aims they've got what they've got different ideas about what they want to get out of this presence of this european in africa and just to add something on to that i think our learning here can really help us consider kind of current and future opportunities and ensure that we work really closely with local knowledge producers crucially at, at the research design stage so not merely as an afterthought. So we genuinely are working together to try to solve whatever the particular challenges or address whatever the challenges might be, but, but done at the actual design stage, not, not later on. Yes, yeah, so, so, and from kind of the historical archive perspective, Frank Oates as an archetype of this period, the opportunity to, to re-examine that sort of poses sort of opportunities and challenges to sort of understand what we can still learn from what is a conventional uh, sort of colonial era archive and what new knowledge of this period can be established and also recovering, as was alluded to, indigenous knowledge, indigenous customs, indigenous practice that in almost quite literally have been written out of the histories of these areas and even in the, the published version of his journals and letters 
Indigenous people are very much sort of sidelined and a, a sideshow to what's happening. So to be able to look beyond that, uh, the subject of Franco's provides a great opportunity for that. And what can be, uh, what lessons can be gained from that can be applied into other fields and other areas and other people. And his work is is well regarded, is it not? Um, regarded as one of the seminal early texts on on Southern Africa. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, if you look at the contemporary reviews of the, the two editions of Matabeleland and Victoria Falls that were published in the 1880s, they were practically universal in their in their praise. There's a number of sort of like aspects to that praise, as Chris alluded to earlier. It's, it very much sort of invokes a you know the kind of plucky Englishman striding across the across the country but specifically they highlighted the uh, appendices that were uh, included that gave a sort of summary of the various findings as it were that Francoes had accumulated and the collection of animal insect uh, plant specimens and there's uh, appendices on ornithology herbatology entomology botany local language but he did also collect human remains. And as an appendices on ethnology, and as Chris alluded to earlier, one of the primary sort of points of interest, indeed it is appendices number one, was about the sort of racial characterizations of some of the people that Frank Oates came across. And as, as widely regarded as this book was at the time for its um sort of contribution to scientific knowledge at the time it is a sanitized version and by the editor uh, charles oates frank's brother who sort of collated together his his journals and letters into a published version it is intended to elicit a very particular interest from its victorian audience um so it's around the sort of time that sort of scholarly and also imperial colonial interest in this region of Africa is expanding considerably. So, so the published work has a very specific purpose, purposes behind it, which as historians and as geographers, we can try and look through that and to keep and also keep that in mind when we are re-examining this area of great colonial and scientific expansion into, into Africa. And we should say now that this is decolonizing geography, even though two of you are historians. Um, Pete, uh, could you explain what does this mean? Well, uh, Harry, this is a really interesting and, uh, I was to say, difficult question to, to, to address, but address it I think we must. And I know it's something that geography departments, university, other departments, social sciences, physical sciences, humanities... And within schools are also trying to tackle and trying to address. And so I, I think we're all on a bit of a learning journey here. But, but my take would be really that decolonizing geography or any discipline for that matter is about recognizing that indigenous people wield agency. So in terms of how we may want to teach and research our disciplines, it's really about presenting a diverse set of uh, perspectives and, and narratives trying to ensure that all voices are heard and, and different narratives uh, are examined. And in terms of thinking about our project, I remember a conversation with, with Chris fairly early on, 
And he said, well, if you want to understand the people living in mid to late 19th century Africa, ideally, really, you're not, your first port of call wouldn't be to ask a British white gentleman explorer. And, and that's a really important perspective, I think, to think of when we're, we're trying to tackle these issues. So as such, this project in particular is about trying to better understand specifically those hidden histories, um, really digging under the told narratives um, to see if we can uncover Indigenous voices more fully, as, as both Joe and, and Chris have alluded to. And I think, you know, the decolonization of, uh, of history is something that's been going, well, it's been underway for quite a while now. Uh, I think really the best part of a, a decade it's been taken up in earnest at, at, at universities. I mean, it's, it's an ongoing process. And I think it's important to acknowledge, you know, that, that there is no kind of defined end point. This is an ongoing conversation but the very act of us you know forcing ourselves i think through this project to think very carefully about what this means for us as practitioners you know we don't have the answers ourselves necessarily we don't have the the end point all we have is the intent you know we have the willingness to kind of to to consider things that raise awkward questions that raise you know that raise kind of that, that have complicated and sometimes uncomfortable implications for ourselves in the present and that's not just to do with Africa, you know. That's to do with kind of ideas about ideas about power um, and 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 so on. So, I think it's been one of the real kind of exciting elements of this is as 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 you say, historians and a geographer working together in the busy the busy grind of academic life. We don't often have these kind of conversations unless we are forced to through a project and it's been a real pleasure kind of you know having this opportunity having this time to do this in a in a in a meaningful way so that we can kind of speak across the disciplinary divide and in the research project chris the the aim was to address uh, present day historical and ecological implications of this period i think you mentioned at the start as being a, a snapshot or a moment in time around what joe was talking about the discovery in exclamation marks of africa by europeans have you managed to do this, and what were the implications? Or is that too 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 big a question? <laughs> it's it's a big question, but it's an important question. Um, so the research is is still ongoing. So we're in that kind of exciting period of, as Joe was saying, getting our hands grubby with the you know at the, at the coal face of the archive. I, I think we you know we've got some kind of kind of preliminary conclusions, and I think one of the main elements to emphasise here goes back to what I was saying about the contingency of expeditions. And that actually reveals just how often how very fragile these Europeans find themselves in, you know, in terms of their predicament. I think it makes us think afresh about the exercising of imperial power in the 19th century. You know, for so long, the idea of European imperialism was of, as these kind of these tidal waves rippling out from European metropolitan uh, centres, these, these kind of tidal waves of power going out into Africa, Asia. And, and and elsewhere and 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 this principally being a story of only of really importance insofar as it tells us about the European side of things and the colonial archive has been read in such a, for such a long way as you know in a in a manner that that reproduces those assumptions because there's been because it is hard to read against the colonial grain it's very hard to read and kind of and as as as, as Pete was saying to kind of dig underneath the told narratives so this is kind of grasping the nettle and it's a it's, it's tricky and it's messy and as I was saying it's a it, it, it's uncomfortable but it's it's got to be done and I you know it's a it's been a it's been a pleasure to kind of to, to, to be on this journey 
And Joe, during the course of the research, which marginalised Indigenous voices or activities did you all uncover? Well, there's plenty more to uncover as it's still uh, preliminary, but there's a there's a few sort of key areas that have so far stood out. So firstly, it's the sort of politics, economy, society of the region that he was travelling through of Matabele land. And position, uh, specifically, the position of King Lobangola, who around the time that Frank Coates had arrived in the region, had only recently been uh, crowned king. And what we get from this archive is kind of a sense of how the politics of the Mdebele nation uh, sort of operates. As Chris was alluding to, reference to the politics of these nations of this era is, is very much in the colonial lens. And all we really get in the published versions are he's a, he's a despot and, he's a, you know, sort of stereotyped sort of strongman African ruler. Um, whereas we dig a little bit deeper, we get a much more kind of subtle uh, picture emerges of, of, this, of this ruler. And also the kind of sense of what his priorities are economically, um, sort of speaking, of what is serving in his interests. And I suppose there's, there's something also that has stood out to me so far in terms of, I guess, what we might call like ecological concerns about the, the controlling of hunting in his lands and to kind of do so in a way that is going to be sustainable. So two examples of he sort of forbids the collection of ostrich eggs, for instance, because he knows that ostrich feathers are the primary means of which, um, or one of the primary means of which he can trade within his kingdom and also um, with his neighbours, and also for the hunting of elephants as as well. He's sort of for having quite tightly controlling, you know, who can come in and hunt elephants, whether you hunt like full grown like bulls and avoiding the kind of smaller calves and cows, that that kind of thing. Another aspect of it is, of course, like the people that he's encountering along the way. So not just the kind of the high and mighty like kind of kings, but also just the, I suppose, like the everyday people that he's encountering. Uh, there's various kind of references to indigenous people sort of trading goods with him in terms of like food, water, beer, other crafts. And there's an exchange taking place there. And we get these kind of hints of, um, again, like a kind of very subtle sort of treatment that these European explorers, traders, hunters are receiving from, from Africans and not just as the sort of colonial archive puts it, have just been difficult and um, like kind of insolent as often often comes across. It's much, much more subtle than that. Um, and then thirdly, are about as we've alluded to already, the African guides who accompanied Frank Oates and indeed all other European explorers of Africa who are carrying his luggage um, is not insurmountable luggage I should have like several wagon loads worth of worth of luggage um, involved the tracking of hunting being able to read the landscape to navigate the landscape to make sure that rather than just like relying on the constellation of the stars and the accuracy of your compass that you have water on your route um, because without that knowledge you're you're not going to last five minutes out there. As indeed, he has a few lucky um, es escapes. Scouting, translating, driving wagons, those types of things. And we get these glimmers of these interactions taking place, much more so in the archive 
as opposed to in the published version, which, as I mentioned, they're they're often sidelined and in some cases aren't even named. And finally, Pete, could you tell us a little more about your project's work collaborating with teachers that Joe's talked about and some of the research he's just outlined? Sure. Well, um, as Chris has said, so one of the real pleasures of this project is working uh, across disciplines, myself as a geographer with uh, colleagues in history, and I'm certainly learning a lot from them. And the other great pleasure is working with teachers. And I'm, I'm really passionate about universities sort of engaging more, I would say, perhaps with schools, colleges, and, and broadening those links between uh, school and, and, and university. And the work we want to do and we are doing with teachers is really about co-production. So it really has to be and we want it to be, and I think it is, a, a two-way process. And from our first workshop, we, we've learned what maybe some of the, the teachers' view are perhaps cracks in the curriculum or areas that, that we can exploit. And, and the aim of the resources is really to deliver, if we can, um, uh, that would work across two disciplines, history and geography, and perhaps some more targeted activities being discipline-specific around a common set of themes with specific resources that, that we can we can go into in, in, in the different uh, detail for the different disciplines. So we know how enthusiastic and passionate the teachers working with us are, both around their subjects and around decolonizing practices. And what we want to do is to really co-produce something that is going to be really well used, hopefully, um, in, in the classroom and focus on you know key learning objectives at, at disciplinary levels. Pete, Chris and Joe, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a fascinating insight into exploration in the past. Thank you very much, Harry. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the Ask the Geographer podcast series on iTunes and SoundCloud.com. Be inspired and stay informed with the Society's wide range of resources, many of which are free. School membership unlocks access to other excellent resources, including online lectures and many other tailor-made benefits for teachers and students. Access our resources at www.rgs.org schools.